So what makes real estate tax efficient outside of an IRA will make it equally tax efficient if a tax does apply inside of an IRA. So you get all your interest expense, your insurance, your mortgage interest, your depreciation, you get all those deductions. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Bernard Reese. Bernard is going to teach us about the crucial differences between a checkbook control IRA and your standard run-of-the-mill self-directed IRA. There's a huge advantage, a lot of huge advantages to the checkbook control IRA. We're going to get into other myths about self-directed investing. We're going to talk about UBIT, UDFI, a lot of tax stuff. Without any further ado, here we go. Bernard, thank you for joining us on Passive Wealth Strategies today. Taylor, great to be with you uh, and looking forward to the show. Yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm really excited for this topic. We were talking before we started recording about the top, the various topics around investing in real estate with tax-advantaged retirement accounts. But before we get into that, could you tell the listeners a bit about your background so that we can all know where you're coming from and what you do? Certainly. I, by training, I am a CPA. Uh, in addition to that, I've got a couple other financial licenses and certifications. And my focus is really taking a deep dive into areas of tax and legal uh, to kind of tailor solutions for each individual investor's profile. Uh, prior to starting my own practice and business, I was in management consulting, uh, working with very large middle market firms and the business owners of those companies. Hmm. Interesting. So you have quite the background and you're, this is a great topic for real estate investors to learn about the, the tax strategies that we can use when we're investing in real estate. And you know, today we're going to talk about retirement account investing, which is a, a very broad topic. And we've talked about self-directed IRAs on the show in the past. I use a self-directed IRA to invest in syndications. But before we got started uh, recording, you were telling me about solo 401ks and checkbook IRAs. These are all things that you know maybe some folks know about, and there are a lot of misconceptions around. So I wanted to get started talking about checkbook IRAs because I had a lot of misconceptions around that uh, because I was told by a custodian, a, a self-directed IRA custodian, that there were some significant disadvantages to the checkbook IRA. And from what I'm hearing from you, that isn't necessarily the case or might not necessarily be the case. So what's, what's the deal here with the checkbook IRA? Tell me about it. Awesome question, uh, and I love I love that question. And what it boils down to is that in financial industry, it's really all about incentives. Uh, and just like we understand that financial advisor that works at your local bank will never tell you about self-directed IRAs and real estate and IRAs, uh, and we know why he won't tell you about that. Uh, that's because you know if the assets go to real estate. They're not part of his AUM. It's not part of his assets under management. He can't get his broker commissions or get his percentage fees on that money. Uh, so we recognize that when, when dealing with the traditional financial world and that financial advisors, they don't tell you about real estate because it's not in their best interests. 
Yes. Well, when you move over to real estate investing, so you've kind of broken through that barrier. Uh, you know, your financial advisor or somebody may have told you that you're going to go to jail if you invest your IRA in real estate. Uh, but <laughs> but you saw the light and you know that the IRS is totally cool with you investing in real estate within an IRA. Uh, so now you get into that space. The biggest players in that space are trust companies. And trust companies are on the business of administering IRAs. And they derive revenue from two things. They get, and it varies, they have different models, but let's talk about broadly speaking um, how they're making money. So they have transaction fees, and that's anytime you want to do something, um, you get dinged with a fee. Uh, they may have asset under management fees as well. That's slowly diminishing. You know, the ones that have that fee structure is going away. But ironically, in the self-directed space, there are some custodians that will take a percentage of your assets. Um, and they have nothing to do with the investments whatsoever. Uh, so they have fees. Um, the other way they're generating revenue is by, or generating some sort of ancillary benefit, is by holding the funds. Uh, so when you have money sitting by them, they are deriving benefits. They are entitled generally to the interest on those funds. Um, and you may think that, hey, I've only got maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars there. Uh, but when you think about it from the custodian's perspective, um, they're trying to hold on to as much money as possible across tens of thousands of investors. And cumulatively, they are sitting on billions of dollars. And the value of that um, is just very, very powerful. So the custodians are incentivized not to tell you about checkbook control. So just like the financial advisor at your local bank um, doesn't want to tell you about self-directed IRAs, self-directed IRA custodians don't want to tell you about checkbook control. Because with checkbook control, you get the money in your banking account where you can get the benefit of having access to the money or earning interest on the money, and you don't need them to process your transactions. Um, so you can eliminate those transaction fees, um, and even more importantly, you can eliminate their processing. You don't have to deal with them, with their paperwork. You just want to write that check. Uh, and then it puts them in an awkward position because, all right, so what are exactly, how are we going to justify charging you all these fees if we all recognize that the custodian is doing nothing? So the custodians, the custodians don't, you know, they're not eager. They're not very pleased uh, with the growing popularity of checkbook control. Okay, so that explains why, uh, you know, I might have received some misinformation. But, um, you know, one of the things that, one of the services they provide, you know, there's this, there's, there's a lot of paperwork involved, but they help with some of the compliance concerns and things like that. So if I'm considering switching to a checkbook IRA or a checkbook control IRA, I want to just know the differences between the two, the strengths and weaknesses, you know, um, how am I, what are, what's the story about the, the checkbook IRA? Cause it sounds like, I mean, do I just, I know I don't just call up my community bank and say, Hey, I want to move my IRA there and open an account. And then I'm just going to, I'm just going to handle that. I, I can't do that. So, I mean, what do I do? What do I do? It's the, the self-directed IRA process is a lot more straightforward. It seems to me. So yes and no, but that, that everything's got its pros and cons. So here are some of the things you'd want to think about. 
um, and provide, you know, it's good to provide some context and also clear up some of the perhaps misconceptions. So the key thing to be aware of is that regardless of how you structure your IRA, there's going to be some sort of custodian involved. Uh, it says so in the tax code, IRA must have a custodian, and that custodian has to be a regulated bank or trust company. So wherever we go, there's going to be a custodian involved. The question is, is just which custodian? So just as you may have moved your IRA from Fidelity uh, in order to get to your self-directed IRA custodian, uh, if you're going to embrace checkbook control, you may be able to work with your current custodian, or you may have to move away from them um, if they're you know, being resistant to that. So in the most part, the custodian community um, has learned to live with checkbook control. Some custodians have embraced it, and actually a kind of a big part of their business is built upon that. Um, and others have done so more reluctantly. Like they're not going to put it up there. You know, the landing page does not say checkbook control IRA. Uh, but if you bring it up with them, they'll tell you, okay, yeah, you can do that with us. And, and others, you know, kind of still fighting it. You know, they're still holding out. So you, there does have to be a custodian involved. But the way you generally, you may want to do that is to say you're working with a service provider like myself. So we know all the custodians in the industry. Uh, we know the pros and cons. We have relationships with them. We know the people there. Uh, we have advantageous pricing arrangements with them. So if you work with us, kind of we, we take it from A to Z. So we'll know, we'll kind of give you, hey, here are the custodians. Um, here are the pros and the cons. Here's the pricing structure. Um, this is how you would sign up if you work with them. So the first step is really to kind of connect with somebody uh, that's got a relationship uh, with the custodian community and knows the, the ins and outs of that industry. Now, the so ironically, you know, although there's going to have to be a custodian involved, the starting point would be with a service provider that knows that niche. But beyond that, the question then is, you know, what is a checkbook control IRA? How is that achieved? Um, and this way, you'll have a better understanding of the kind of questions you have to be asking. You know, what is this checkbook control, and how do we get there? Now, checkbook control is kind of this term, marketing term or that emerged that describes giving you, the investor, control of the checkbook. Uh, obviously, today, we can call it an ACH IRA or a wire transfer IRA. Um, it can be anything. You get total flexibility of having the money in a bank account. But how do we achieve that? If an IRA's got to have a custodian. So there are... <laughs> Beats me. Yeah. Yes. So the, you know, the listeners, I know we're going to publish the audio, and they don't see the facial expressions that we've got going on. <laughs> so you kind of have to jailbreak it. And there are a couple of ways to do it. But broadly speaking, we're going to create an entity um, using most likely an LLC or alternatively a trust. And we tell the custodian we're making an investment in an entity, right? Just like you can tell your custodian you're doing your syndication investment investment with your self-directed IRA, right? So you tell the custodian, okay, we're, the money's going to this LLC, and right? And what's that LLC going to do? It's going to invest in real estate. All right, so we can create an LLC just for this purpose, and it has to be structured so it's compliant, and the custodians will review it to ensure that it's compliant, and we tell the custodian we're making an investment in an LLC. 
it looks very much like the syndication investment. From the custodian's perspective, you're investing in an LLC. Okay, well, we create an entity. And then you get the, you manage that entity and you control the bank account of that entity. And then you may have a syndication, you may have a dozen, you may have hard money loans, tax liens, cryptocurrency, uh, you know, whatever it is that kind of rocks your boat or for all of the above or some of the above, none of the above, uh, private equity, more or less, if you can imagine it, you can do it, you know, in a checkbook IRA and most things, most, but not all of those can done with the custodian. Uh, but with the checkbook control, um, you completely marginalize the custodian because you have the money in the bank account and then that LLC does the investments. So rather than your IRA being the investor in a syndication, right? So say we would create passive wealth LLC and go to syndication. Who's the investor? Not the IRA. The investor would be passive wealth LLC. Um, incidentally, Passive Wealth LLC has been funded by the IRA, uh, but that's kind of besides the point. That's nobody's business. So it just streamlines the process. Um, it makes it business as usual. So as you can see, though, now you've got a whole new set of questions. Uh, so what kind of entity do you want to create? Should it be a corporation? Should it be an LLC? Should it be a trust? Uh, and entities can be domiciled in different states. Uh, there are 51 domiciles within, you know, the US of A. You've got 50 states and DC. Well, so where should you put that LLC? You've got a lot of choices. What should this tax structure of that LLC be? In most cases, it would just be a disregarded entity, uh, but not always do you want that. Sometimes we may want to go for some other tax structure. So there's a lot more nuance available. Um, so you want to look for somebody that's ready to focus on your needs, your objectives, and your strategy um, and help you make the best decisions for what you're trying to do. So, okay, so there's a lot there. I definitely appreciate you breaking that down because I didn't know this whole process before. So from a fee perspective, one of the big advantages with the checkbook IRA is that by setting this up, this LLC controls everything and whatnot, we're avoiding those transaction fees from the original custodian or the, the the overarching custodian that actually holds the IRA. Is that correct? That's that's exactly it. Because what happens is the custodians generally have a per transaction fee and a per asset fee. So if you don't use checkbook control, every investment is a new asset and a new transaction. And in fact, a single asset can have multiple transactions. Uh, so yes. the fees begin to add up. So even if you're working with a low cost custodian, uh, over time you'll begin to see, and the more you invest, um, those fees begin to add up. And with the checkbook control, um, your fees are nominal. It's, it's, you save thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. I mean, this has been one of my biggest pain points with my self-directed IRA is just the, you know, I was moving from being a stock investor. I used Vanguard who, and I was an index investor. So their fees are nothing, you know, when yeah. you're investing in the S&P, it's, it's zero effectively. And then moving to self-directed and seeing hundreds of dollars per you know time I want to move the money or, you know, invest in an entity, whatever, anything. And then every year there's a fee and, and all of these things. So definitely appreciate the, advantage of reducing the, uh, the the fees that we're paying. But as far as demonstrating that we're remaining in 
compliance or staying in compliance, I mean, there's a lot, there are a lot more, you can see a lot more potential pitfalls with setting up this LLC. And obviously we're not going to, we're going to understand the laws. We're not going to blatantly break the laws. But if somebody comes at the IRS, who's going to come knocking? If they come knocking on the door saying, you know, we need you to demonstrate that, you know, and you haven't committed any prohibited transactions or done business with anybody that's prohibited, namely yourself, you haven't self-dealt with your checkbook IRA. How do we demonstrate that with this checkbook control? Yeah, that, that's an awesome question. And it's good to cl also to clarify it, it's something inherent that's kind of a given that seems to be assumed is that with the custodian, um, you're protected. And being somebody that's in this industry and not just setting these up, I'm also dealing with people that have all sorts of IRAs, not necessarily set up with us, uh, but they come to us for subsequent compliance um, yeah. services. Having a custodian is no guarantee uh, that you're not, there's not going to be a prohibited transaction. The benefit of the custodian is that you can't instantaneously do anything, right? If you want to do a tr engage in a transaction, you've got to do the paperwork. Um, at the very least, it's going to take a couple of days for it to get done. Uh, so if there's an obvious prohibited transaction there, the custodian will generally pick it up, uh, mm -hmm. the glaringly obvious ones. Um, and even if the, they would not, um, there's time. Uh, whereas when you have the checkbook control, you could just write that check. Uh, so there's no guarantee when you have the custodian that there will not be a prohibited transaction. Um, I don't want to go down the ear with any stories and anything that I've seen, <laughs> but uh, that is far from the case. It's actually a, having that false sense of security um, can actually be troublesome. You know, you can get into trouble and be, when you're complacent and you think that, hey, the compliance is taken care of by the custodian. Um, that is certainly not the case. Now, with the checkbook control, uh, you must be aware of the rules, but you have to be aware of the rules in any event. The key thing I would say is you want to be working with a service provider that's not just looking to sell you a structure, collect their fee, and move on. Um, somebody that is really committed to your success um, and will educate you far more um, and far more on a higher level and deeper level um, than you'd get ever get from a custodian. I guess I, I make the assumption, uh, maybe being a little bit um, myopic is maybe not the right word, but um, I do make the assumption that my custodian is going to help keep me in compliance, but also because I understand the transactions that I'm doing with my IRA. I understand the rules, I think, well enough, or I'm pretty sure well enough to avoid prohibited transactions. But we do have people out there that are doing a lot more transactions with their retirement accounts, with their self-directed IRAs and, and other retirement accounts, and a lot more unique transactions that maybe they're doing something that's prohibited and their custodian's not catching it. So I, I don't know. I guess that's, that's uh, so with the custodians, the world. Got it. So I'll tell you, there are an incredible amount of unknown unknowns in this space. Uh, and when I say unknown unknowns, uh, what I mean to say is your, you know, investor that's going to Google and think, you know, they've seen a couple of websites. I'm a noun. I know the rules. Uh, it really is not the case. The way what the custodians, the kind of transactions that the custodian will catch or at least uh, protect themselves from liability for, uh, their general paperwork is going to ask, okay, do you, your father, your son, uh, you know, do you own this investment? Um, and if you write no, 
they fund it. But prohibited transactions can, you know, they lurk in different places. And just going through that questionnaire, that catches kind of the ones that everybody's aware of, uh, but not the ones uh, that are not as well understood um, or not as apparent. The custodian's main objective is actually to protect themselves, right? They they mm -hmm. want they it's about their relationship with the IRS, right? Their status as a custodian. Um, if there's a prohibited transaction, they have to report it. Uh, they don't want prohibited transactions, um, and if there's a prohibited transaction, they prefer not to know about it uh, because that puts them in an awkward position. But of course, uh, they're never gonna they're you know, highest commitment is to the IRS, not to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, can, you know, we don't need to get too specific. I'm sure you've got a lot of stories, but can you give us an example of a prohibited transaction that would not be caught by those initial easy filters and that someone who's, you know, let's say an armchair quote unquote expert who's done a bit of their own learning on the side trying to avoid those prohibited transactions? What is one that maybe that's that's lurking out there that maybe we don't see coming and we need to avoid? Just for an example. So one example is business partners. Business partners, uh, so people that may have financial relationships with other people uh, that they're doing investing with or running joint ventures with, uh, and they see as, hey, I can use my self-directed IRA and invest. I know I can't be part of the transaction, but I can have my business partner be part of the transaction. Uh, so that trips people up quite often. Hmm. Interesting. So if they're in a, a an un uh, well, I don't know, sorry, unrelated, but a different business partnership, then you know I'm, I'm in a business partnership with Bill. I can't then use my self-directed IRA to invest in some kind of business that Bill has going on the side. That's right. Interesting. Okay. You know, this is a very uh, wide topic, right? And there are a lot of questions that I have, and I think a lot of people have, because once you once you crack the egg of talking about investing in real estate with retirement accounts, so many people come out of the woodwork and want to, you know, bring their uh, knowledge to the table with their own their own angle to the table. And one of the big things that you hear when you talk about this uh, uh, this topic of investing in real estate with retirement accounts, is that it's incorrect or naive or wrong or whatever to invest in a tax-advantaged asset like real estate with a tax-advantaged or deferred or whatever you want to call it, account like a retirement account. If people say that's, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Why is that? Why should we just not think that way? Awesome question. I get that all the time. Uh, the, really, there are so many aspects of the question, uh, and for some people, it impacts different investors differently. So let's, without getting, let's just assume we're talking about your passive investor, um, and they, for the most part, they're not going to benefit from a real estate loss, right? Because they're not going to be able to write off that loss against other income. Uh, that's a misconception out there. People think, oh, I can take the real estate loss and offset my W-2. That would uh, which be great. For, that would be awesome. Um, and, and that was the case up until the mid-1980s when Congress said, okay, we got to put an end to that. Uh, people are investing in real estate just to create losses. So for most people, real estate losses um, don't really do anything. They end up being suspended losses. 
uh, it can't offset their W-2. So real estate itself, though, is relatively tax efficient when compared to other investments. And it is certainly true that you want to use tax-sheltered accounts, tax-free accounts, for the assets that are create the greatest tax liability. So that is true. If you're weighing, okay, should I put real estate or something or a hard money loan into my self-directed IRA? So obviously, or you know, the, if you're someone that is investing in both real estate, equity, and debt, then and you're going to do some of it with your personal funds and some with your IRA. By all means, you should be putting the hard the debt investment, the interest earning investment, that hard money loan, private loan. That's the one that you would put in your IRA, and the real estate equity you would do in your own name, because the debt investment which throws off interest income, needs more tax shielding. Hmm. Now, however, if you are not contemplating that choice, then it's just about putting in the IRA the investment that's going to give you the best return. Uh, real estate is great outside of an IRA from a tax perspective, uh, but that doesn't mean it's not great inside an IRA. Um, an IRA is great because you don't pay taxes at all, uh, whereas in your own name, you need to get deductions, right? And eventually you run out of deductions. Um, you run out of those. So it's that's really the question. Uh, you know, what is the best asset that I'm contemplating investing in for my IRA? Uh, that's what it boils down to. Uh, it's not the fact that it could be relatively tax efficient outside of an IRA. It's just immaterial. It's not part of the calculation. I agree. I mean, this this is what, this is probably a thing that, drives me uh not crazy just about this discussion but when this comes up people say don't invest in real estate with your retirement account I'm like why the money's there i need to put it in something i don't want to invest it in the stock market or i already have exposure to the stock market in that ira and i want to diversify inside it and if i find a good investment a good syndication investment for example why shouldn't i invest in that investment with my IRA you know maybe like you said um, maybe there's a, a better way a better potential asset class for me to invest in like a, a loan that throws off interest which would be more advantaged inside a retirement account than outside a retirement account I don't, I don't know this this whole conversation bothers me because well first we should strive to make good investments no matter what we're investing in and if for me and for many people out there, if you've got capital in your retirement account that you're you want to get out of the stock market or it's already out of the stock market, then find a good investment and invest in it. I mean, what's the problem here? You're so right. And the irony of this is there's probably nothing uh, that's nearly as tax efficient as the stock market. Because if you think about this, uh, right, most Americans, the trillions and trillions of dollars that are sitting in IRAs are invested in the stock market. Yeah. Um, and nobody's ever said don't invest your IRA in stocks because it's tax efficient. Uh, but here's the lowdown on investing in the stock market, and especially if buying an index fund. And uh, we were talking about index funds. Uh, what you're going to type of income you're going to get is long-term capital gains and qualified dividends. Well, those are taxed at you know depending which tax bracket you'd be in outside of an IRA, they would be zero to twenty percent. Right, so it's not your income tax rate, which is going to maybe substantially higher. Stock market investments 
are tax efficient relatively, right? Relative to other investments. Compared um, to your w, W-2 income even, we'll say that. Oh, absolutely, like, right. Yeah, yeah. It's not ordinary income. So you're yeah. generally getting um, relatively, it's relatively tax efficient. Um, so why do you have an IRA, right? Well, you have an IRA because tax-free is better than tax efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if we're if we're in this this realm of, you know, we're talking stocks and I'm sure we have folks listening who are flippers or considered considering flipping. Flipping is an exceptionally tax inefficient way to invest in real estate. Personally, I don't even really consider it a real estate investment because it's taxed at ordinary income rates, which can be excessive if you're as long as if you're just, you know, I guess you could probably do it in a some kind of advantage account, but that's even more difficult. You know, I, I don't know. This whole topic is, I, I feel like there's a lot of um, misinformation in the sense that folks want to potentially bring on clients because they're selling a particular type of investment account. So they're, you know, t- only talking about the pros of the thing that they sell and never talking about some of the cons. Oh, you, you're you're so right. Uh, that, uh, that unfortunately is the case. And, and a key point I've been trying to make lately is that you want to work with somebody that can doesn't really have a horse in the race, uh, that's more or less ready to send you anywhere. Um, and I say also look for the kind of person whose background um, is in something more substantive. Uh, so I like working with, uh, yeah, I may have a little bias there, but I do, you know, even people that have transitioned, uh, that have transitioned to more um, investment-related niches, but medical professionals, people have a da- background in medicine, law, uh, accounting, you know, so there's something more substantive and they're less likely to be pure salespeople. But the but you're totally right. There are things that are getting people into plans that are not optimal for them. And the flipping thing that you brought up is an excellent, excellent uh, way to illustrate that. So, of course, you can do flipping inside of a self-directed retirement account. And, of course, the most efficient way to do that would be with checkbook control. However, uh, flipping may, you know, you may not have, may not benefit from the tax sheltering um, that an IRA or 401k provides. Really? Because because when you engage in an active business inside of an IRA or 401k, it gets taxed. Mm. Now, there are tax strategies to work around that. And so ultimately, the question is going to be what's right for you. Uh, because say somebody that's flipping, right, and he they're getting these incredible returns, right? If you know some flippers, you may not do it, uh, but those that do it well do phenomenally well. And you're totally right. The IRS does not view flipping as so much as real estate or business, and that's why it may be taxed even inside of an IRA. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it because if you can get a 200% return um, and get taxed on it, well, you're never going to get that in the stock market. So mm. do it in the IRA and, and, and eat the tax. I mean, it's just going to destroy whatever else you were doing. Uh, but, of course, there's a lot more nuance associated with that. When does that tax apply? Uh, maybe you can mitigate it or eliminate it. Um, how can you manage it or optimize it? So you can do all these things, uh, but it's about working with somebody that knows these nuances and is happy to share that information with you. Absolutely. Another one of these nuances, while well, well, I've got you, another big thing that comes up when you're talking about 
self-directed IRAs and, and these retirement accounts is UDFI and UBIT, UBIT. The, uh, I'll, I'll let you define those because I'll probably screw it up. But let's talk about those because I feel like most people that, that warn you about these things from the outside is, here's a reason why you shouldn't invest. You, know, you need to know about UDFI. Most of the people that warn you about it don't know anything about it or they, they have at best a cursory understanding of it. And I would say my understanding is even cursory. So teach us, teach us about UDFI and, and UBIT and why it's not so scary, or maybe it is scary. I don't know. Yeah. Glad to talk about this. Um, it's a topic that really needs to be spoken about uh, because I'd say I'm spending a lot of my time lately um, trying to clarify so many of the misconceptions out there about UDFI. And the score with UDFI is as follows. Um, those that are, don't want you to know about it. They have an interest, their vested interests prefer that you not be aware of it. Uh, do not mention it. Um, and those that are trying to push you to do something else other than an IRA, um, they kind of put this front and center um, and totally misrepresent what it is. So let's talk about what UDFI is, what it isn't. And ultimately, it's kind of like the discussion we had a moment a moment ago about real estate and IRAs being tax sheltered. Um, UDFI is never going to be a reason not to invest in real estate inside of an IRA. Um, it's not going to be the determining factor in a decision that you make. Um, if your decision is, okay, I'm doing real estate in an IRA, and how should I go about it? Should I do it, you know, equity investor with debt, or should I do it as a loan? That will, that's where it will play a role. Uh, but um, in the overall decision, should I use an IRA for real estate? Should I use a 401k QRP or take a taxable distribution? Uh, UDFI is not really part of that equation. So with that being said, what is UDFI? So UDFI is the acronym for Unrelated Debt Financed Income. And it's a subset of UBIT, um, of UBTI. And those are what we mentioned before uh, with regard to flipping, um, unrelated business taxable income. So it helps to know the chronology to understand what these are and put them in perspective. So Congress instituted this UBIT concept, this tax on tax-free accounts uh, back in the 50s when charitable organizations were getting involved. They were owned, uh, University Hospital owned the Mueller Macaroni Company. Right, and so now it's a 501c3, uh, which means they're charitable organizations that are tax-free. They don't pay taxes. Uh, back in those days, taxes were 60%, 70%, much higher than they are today. Uh, and you can imagine they're operating a retail company, a merchandising company, and they're manufacturing and selling, and they're not paying any taxes. Um, they can just destroy the competition, right? They can just lower their price, undercut you, um, and drive everybody else out of business. So Congress realized that, hey, even if you're a tax-free entity, uh, we're not, you're going to have to pay tax if you're getting involved in some sort of business that has nothing to do with your tax-free purpose. You're a hospital, you're a university, um, anything that you do with regard to being in a hospital, no taxes. You take donations, no taxes. Uh, but if you start running some sort of side gig, uh, we're going to tax you on that. <laughs> uh, now, then what happened was, um, these charitable entities were borrowing money uh, to get involved in certain transactions and, again, to use their tax advantage status well beyond what Congress intended. And, again, to kind of 
uh, altered dynamics in the regular business market. So Congress came in and said, all right, if you invest, it can be tax-free, but if you're going to a bank and you're borrowing to do the investment, a portion of that investment will be taxable. To the extent that you use borrowed money, we're going to tax you. Many questions about that. Is that making any sense? Is that making sense? It, it makes sense and that I didn't know that explanation, uh, the, the historical explanation as to why it was introduced, so I certainly appreciate you teaching us about that. The, the next question is, okay, so I'm, I'm going to have this taxable liability. And if everybody's so scared of it, then it, it this my liability on this tax on this from U, this um, UDFI related tax it must be 95 percent. I mean, there's no way it must just completely wipe out all of my returns, huh? And how much does it really impact your return if everybody's so freaked out about it? Are they freaked out uh, for a good reason, or is it really that? Uh, I'm a salesperson, so I don't want to give <laughs> salespeople a bad name. But is it really maybe people being a little too I don't know, salesy or markety or you know, whatever? Is it overreaction? So I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what's going. You know, give a little insight. So it is natural for people to kind of just be intimidated. You know, just like oh, UDFI, run the other way, run for cover. They don't know mm -hmm. what it is. Just stay away. Uh, but what's putting this front and center is the fact that there is a limited exemption for UDFI for qualified retirement plans. Uh, so what's going on is as follows. And just so you know, we I set up qualified retirement plans and IRAs, so I'm completely indifferent. Uh, my preference is actually as often as possible, uh, both from my own business interests, is to set up a qualified retirement plan as opposed to checkbook IRA. Mm -hmm. um, but What's going on is the people that set up QRPs, which are qualified retirement plans, um, and which is going to be a solo 401k in almost all instances, is uh, and there's, I'm not aware of any exceptions to that. So they have an interest in kind of making this UDFI be this big intimidating thing. Um, this way they say, hey, but we do QRP, and that's not subject to UDFI. Um, and that's kind of putting it front and center to drive people to use uh, qualified retirement plans or QRPs rather than IRAs. Uh, but the fact remains that the question of whether or not somebody should have, you know, whether a client comes to us, we have to determine, um, you know, help them determine, should they use a QRP or should we set them up with an IRA? You know, okay, we're fine. We're going to set you up either QRP or IRA. Um, so, of course, we prefer QRP when we can. But the determining factor is going to be, do they qualify for the QRP, uh, not UDFI, because the fact that IRAs are subject to UDFI doesn't qualify you for a QRP. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Right. Yeah. So it's just not part of the discussion. The you know now why should UDFI? You know, assuming of course, if somebody is a good fit for QRP and they want a QRP, we just set up a QRP for them. Uh, but suppose they're not a good fit. Now, obviously, we don't want them to go running away and not investing in real estate. So <laughs> how do we put this in perspective? So let's talk about the charitable organization. Forget IRAs for a moment. All right, so your charitable organization back in the 60s, they're going to do an investment. Now, they can – a couple of things. They can do it all cash or they can borrow money from the bank. So UDFI tax is not – you're not taxed 
on all the income. And to illustrate how this would work, um, say you've got revenue, right? Revenue in accountant speak means just the money that comes in from the deal, right? And let's use round numbers. Million dollars comes in. That's your revenue. Do you get taxed at a million dollars? Of course not. No. Okay. The, right, <laughs> the, the first thing you've got to know is your net, right? First, all your deductions come out, right? So after deducting all your expenses, uh, that may go down to zero or negative. And let's just keep the focus on real estate because that's primarily where this is relevant. So on a real estate investment in general, in the first couple of years, there will be no net income because real estate, as we said, is tax efficient. So the first couple of years, uh, being that you're having your depreciation deductions, all the regular deductions that you would have outside of an IRA, those exist even inside of an IRA, right? So when we said an IRA doesn't need deductions, that's what it does in all cash investment. But say it's using leverage, um, so then all of a sudden, okay, if you're gonna have tax, then you get deductions. So what makes real estate tax efficient outside of an IRA will make it equally tax efficient if a tax does apply inside of an IRA. So you get all your interest expense, your insurance, your mortgage interest, your depreciation, you get all those deductions. So that's the first step. So let's take down on real estate in general, you're not gonna have any net income. But say you're a couple of years into the investment and now real estate does show net income. Well, outside of a retirement account, you would pay taxes. Inside of a retirement account, if it's an all cash deal, no taxes. But suppose there was leverage involved. Well, in that case, you're not, the tax does not apply to the total net income. It's only to the extent that leverage was used, uh, which makes a lot of sense. So say you, you're in the deal, 40% equity, 60% debt. The tax will only apply to the portion that was financed. Is that making sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So it, it only applies to the, the portion that's financed. Absolutely. And but. now here's the thing. Now that you hear that, hopefully a couple of lights should be going off. off. Your equity investment is tax-free forever. Right? Congress wasn't coming in to say if you have $100,000 in your IRA and it borrows $300,000 that we're going to tax you on the full four hundred. dollars right? That $100,000 that you put into the deal, that remains tax-free. Now, the cool okay. thing is right? if you're at Vanguard and you say, hey, I've got $100,000 in my IRA, I've got um, S&P 500 index fund, uh, give me another $300,000 of S&P. You're going to get that? No way. <laughs> no way. No way, right? <laughs> But by the way, if Vanguard would do that for you, you know what you would have? UDFI. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with real estate. It's if you if all of a sudden somehow you're getting OPM, then you get taxed. There is a tax on that. I mean, most cases you've got to be a, a fool to say I'll do it cash only, right? That's the beauty of real estate that you can get the OPM. All right, yes, you pay interest on the OPM, right? You'll pay the bank their percentage, but you get the benefit of leverage. Uh, same thing here. Well, if you go in the stock market, you can also have UDFI. It's just nobody's going to lend it to you. Uh, but yeah, of course, true. <laughs> uh, but of course, suppose you had that option available to you. Many people would borrow money um, and leverage their stock portfolio. Um, it's just not available. So the beauty of having real estate in your IRA is you can get a non-recourse loan. The bank will lend you money. And you can buy $400,000 worth of real estate, even though you only have $100,000. And yes, there may be a tax on the portion that the bank gave you. But 
you just got the benefit of OPM. It's just the cost of using the bank's money. That's all it is. Yeah. So I think the next logical question, though, is all right. So this a chunk of it is uh, is subject to tax in some way. You know, even though my my original equity is not subject based on the logic you just covered. So what is that rate that the other the the financed portion is taxed at? Is it a billion percent, and then therefore it's all pointless, or is it something that's far more reasonable? Okay, let's talk investors. about the tax rates because there is incredible misinformation about that. Now, it is true that what happens is the tax brackets for UDFI are we call compressed. So you very quickly hit the higher tax brackets. So view it as a regular income tax brackets, but you at lower levels of income, you'll find yourself at a higher tax bracket. So what happens is the first $1,000 of UDFI is tax-free. You got $1,000 freebie. But above that, you get quickly progressed. So if you have $13,000 of UDFI, then anything above $13,000, you're already at 37% tax rate. You're at the highest tax bracket at just $13,000 of UDFI. In practice, you don't see that level of UDFI uh, because, again, it's real estate and you have all those deductions. Where it would apply, where would UDFI apply? It's at the sale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The capital gains. If I had to ask you, what's the tax rate when an IRA sells an asset that's leveraged? I don't know. I'm not I'm not the tax expert. That's that's. That's God, my job. Okay. That's that question. <laughs> so if you're listening you to what's me. out there, um, you're going to hear 40%. It's capital gains rates. Mm, so, yeah. so again, it's it's going to be zero to 20. So it goes, in essence, those high, those high tax brackets, in most cases, never materialize. It's a figment of imagination because in almost all cases, real estate investing with an IRA, um, you're going to have your net UDFI is going to be a very low number. It'll be non-existent for a couple of years. Um, then it'll begin to show up, but in low numbers, uh, where really, where you really have that high number is going to be at the sale, um, and then you're looking at somewhere between zero to twenty percent. Hmm. Okay, so still, it, it's but it, this discussion deal. is really it's it's not just not bad. The key thing is it's not really a factor in the decision. You should be aware of this. Um, and yes, if it's again, if you're choosing, should I invest my IRA perhaps just with, should I do an all-cash investment or a leveraged investment? That's really where the calculation comes in. Um, and, it, and then if you're going to do a leveraged investment, whatever the kind of investment it's going to be, be it real estate, um, or if you're going to leverage and then lend money, you know, wh wherever there's going to be leverage inside of an IRA, um, you're going to have your there's the potential for UDFI. So are you going to do cash only, or are you going to use leverage? Well, if I'd ask you, uh, when you invest in real estate in your own name, do you use leverage or do cash only? Leverage. Right? The bank comes, the banks, <laughs> does the bank come, right? Well, you know, you're looking at, should I do the million dollar deal or the $4 million deal? The bank says, we'll give you $3 million. You say, nah, keep the money. I'm going to do the million dollar deal. <laughs> I'll take the small deal. No way. Exactly. So that's, it's just a, it's being, the perspective that's being thrown out on this is completely you know, that I'm encountering every day um, is just not the right way to look at it. The question is, all right, if you've made that decision and you realize that you want to get into alternative assets, and again, it's almost always going to be real estate based, 
Um, and that's because you realize that for whatever reason, your financial plan, uh, your what you want to be in is real estate. That's what you want to use your IRA for. Then do it and then navigate the UDFI, but it doesn't impact the decision. Um, UDFI is a reason to use a QRP if you qualify for it. But if you don't qualify for it, just like you should not take a taxable distribution, right? Ironically, uh, I've spoken to syndicators that say we don't take money from IRAs anymore because of UDFI. Uh, that's not good for the syndicator. It's not good for the investors uh, because most people do, will not qualify for a QRP. And it's a shame for them not be able to, to be forced to either take a taxable distribution from their IRA if they want to use that money for real estate. Because if somebody's got $200,000 in an IRA and they take out taxable distribution, um, they're probably going to be left with $100,000 after taxes and penalties. Uh, so that's not a good way to go. And to put the money in a QRP that they don't qualify for is also a mistake. Um, of course, if the IRS doesn't catch you, you'll be okay. But when they do, uh, you know, it's it's probably not going to be, you know, you're not you're not going to be happy with the outcome there. So yeah. the key thing is get into a plan that suits you and do the deals. Uh, UDFI is just something that you got to deal with, uh, but it's a cost of OPM. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like putting in many cases worrying about or. Yeah in my opinion, in every case, worrying about UDFI and not doing a deal because of UDFI or not investing in a deal solely because you might be subject to UDFI is just putting the car before the horse. You're, you're not worrying about the right thing. We need to be focused on doing good deals first and then optimize our tax strategy and how we invest in it. But if, if from my perspective, if I come across a good deal, and I've got funds sitting in my retirement account that I'd rather you know, put in this particular deal. I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm investing in the deal, period, because it's a good deal. The first priority should be to do a good deal and not to sit on the sidelines. And I, I think your example from earlier, you're, you're talking about the tax situation around stocks is, is very helpful because I haven't thought about it that way before that they're already very tax advantaged compared to less tax advantaged uh, investments that we can do with self-directed retirement accounts. Yeah. It so very I, helpful. That's, that's, it's so right. And yes, of course, I come back to that. If you have access to a hard money deal or you like that um, and you want to do that kind of deal, uh, then by all means, that's the kind of deal that's optimal for a tax sheltered account. Uh, but if you're doing real estate, you're just getting the UDFI is actually something great because it's a sign of the fact that real estate is a hard asset. They're going to lend you money against it. Uh, and yes, you have the option of avoiding UDFI doing cash only, but you'd never do that. Uh, so that's really a way to look at it. And another beautiful thing about UDFI, you know, because the way I put the perspective I put on it, it's the cost of OPM, right? It's just the cost of leverage, right? Because if you can do an all cash deal. Um, and even when you borrow the money, your equity investment remains tax-free. The only portion of the return that's taxed is the portion that's attributable to the OPM. Well, when you borrow money from a bank, right, you pay them that fixed percentage, no matter what your deal is doing. The deal is a great deal, the deal is a bad deal, uh, they get their money or they take your property, yeah. right? With the, the IRS, if you're not having, if you're not having net taxable income, they don't get the money. So in a way, they're better than the bank uh, because they're not taking their, you know, they don't take anything. If the deal's not doing well 
or the deal at least doesn't have net taxable income because you have depreciation, you've got write-offs, then there's nothing goes to them. So it's the cost of OPM, um, and the way to look at it again is, do I want to do cash-only stock market investments, or do I want to get the benefit, get into real estate, get the benefit of leverage? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're talking about real estate investments and you know, multifamily, for example, I mean, the only folks that I see, I can even see doing all cash deals right now are people with deep, deep pockets that have a lot of capital to deploy. But even then, I mean, they're taking out, they're doing debt finance deals too. I mean, that's just the way the industry works. I mean, people are doing all cash deals for sure, but I don't see it personally. I don't see it happening at the scale that I invest at, the deals that I invest in. So yeah, nobody wants to do an all cash deal uh, because you get the, the leverage is you and from a financial perspective, from a finance perspective, if you calculate um, your ROI and your leveraged ROI, you're just coming out way ahead with the OPM. Uh, the one you're going to see the cash only deals is going to be people that they just don't see themselves having any other deals to do and they've got to deploy capital. So they're sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars and they're just like, what are we going to do with all this? I don't know. We're a pension fund or something. And I don't know. Our, our investors are expecting us to do something. Uh, and there's just not enough deals to go around, so we'll do an all-cash deal. Or they're going to do that to snag a deal. Mm -hmm. But nobody ever wants to do an all-cash deal because unless your interest rates are incredibly high, um, your leveraged ROI is just going to be so much higher. Yeah, yeah. You can't show any kind of good cash-on-cash cash return if you're putting up only cash and not using any of that sweet, sweet bank financing out there that's available. But I feel like we could talk about this this topic all day, and I'll, I'd love to have you on again uh, soon. First, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. So, Bernard, I've got three questions that I ask every guest on the show at the end of the show. First question, what is the best investment you ever made? Best investment I'd ever made, I'd say, is investing in education. Mm, yeah. It's is there kinda, any, anything in particular that comes to mind? So it, it guides everything that you do um, subsequently. So the best investment is really investing in yourself so that you're positioned after that to maximize ROI and everything else that you do. Uh, and I'd say that type of education only to a limited extent is formal education. Uh, it, it comes from experience, um, getting out there and doing things. And even if it's the kind of information that comes from a book, it's probably not the textbook that you got in college. Uh, it's probably something unique, what, you know, it both taking a deep dive into something specific that you want to pursue and also things that have a much broader perspective, uh, you know, that just develop your overall philosophy uh, towards engaging with life, with people, with investing, with everything. Um, so you ever heard of, you know, Charles Munger, Charlie Munger? Oh, yeah. Uh, Warren Buffett's business partner, correct? Yes, so he's kind of that's he's a big proponent of that. Um, realizing that there's when you look at an investment, um, it's not just about the spreadsheet. Um, it's about bringing to bear your total life experience um, and so many other things that you've learned and been exposed to, and so many different disciplines um, that should inform your perspective on an investment. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you ever made? The I'm going to continue in the same vein. I think the the worst investment uh, that I've made is about it's not about a deal. I think you have to work with the right people. 
Um, and that's a big part of success is who you're working with, who you're associating with. And working with the wrong people is, you know, ha what, it was a factor um, in the places where I've seen, you know, where I have not seen the success that I would have hoped to. Mm. Keep in mind who you work with. Now, my favorite question out of these three is what is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? You are responsible for your own success. Do not subordinate your judgment to anybody else. There is nobody that is going to put your interests, uh, give it the priority that it deserves and needs other than yourself. Uh, so whatever you do, think for yourself. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. My, the favorite dollars, my favorite dollars in the world are the ones that are sitting in my bank account or are out there deployed and are entitled to me. <laughs> so, and, and that I think it believes that apply. I believe that applies to everyone out there. It should apply to everyone out there. Nobody's looking out for you and your money better than you are. And nobody's more responsible for your success than you are. So I like that. Yeah. I'd say there's definitely a continuum, right? So there are the folks that, you know, that they're willing, they want to see you successful or they want to help you out. Uh, but at the farthest extreme, you know, in the continuum, who's looking out for you, um, it's you by a long shot. Um, and be after that, you know, somewhere there's a continuum, people that are helpful, people that are sincere, and then, you know, there's the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, but at that right end of the spectrum, for who's looking out for you, um, nobody more than yourself. Absolutely. I love it. Bernard Reese, thank you for joining us on the show today. This is a, a, a huge topic that we talked about. We, we, I don't even know if we scratched the surface. We just covered some of the common misconceptions, we'll, we'll call it, that are out there today in the world. If people want to learn more, where can they get in touch with you? Best place, I say Google Reshore Financial. Um, that's the best way to do it. Um, of course, they can visit our website at 401kcheckbook.com. Uh, but the best way to do it, make sure you get to the right place, Google Reshore Financial, and you'll find us. You'll find podcasts. You'll find the website. You'll find reviews. Uh, lots of helpful info. Awesome. Awesome. Been a great conversation. Uh, thank you for everything. And, you know, I learned a lot here. Had a lot of my questions answered and, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you for that. Taylor, thanks for having me. Uh, I very much enjoyed being on the show and I'd love to do it again. Awesome. We'll definitely do that. To everybody out there listening, thank you for tuning in. I hope you learned a lot today. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a, a huge help, helps other people learn about the show. It's a big, uh, it's very much appreciated. If you know anybody out there that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, share the show with them and let's get them started on their passive wealth. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day, a great week, and we will talk to you on the next one.